tonight, we hope to get through 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18 together. Uh, it's a big chunk of scripture for us to work our way through, but uh, the two chapters really go together rather nicely because as a shadow hanging over both of these chapters is the mighty Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in chapter 17, and it's going to gravely threaten the southern kingdom of Judah in chapter 18. So let's begin here, taking a look here, 2 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, Hosea, the son of Elah, we were introduced to him back in 2 Kings chapter 15. Uh, he was a man who successfully led a conspiracy against Pekah, the king of Israel. And after the successful assassination, he took the throne and started his own brief dynasty. And I'm fascinated by the description here of Hosea in verses 1 and 2, where it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, isn't that interesting? He was bad, but not quite as bad as some of his predecessors. He was an evil man, but by no means the worst of the kings of Israel. Now, sadly, his bloody overthrow of the preceding king and his violent ascent to power did not make him unusually evil. You would think that a man who murdered his predecessor to take the throne, he would be the champion of evil among the kings of Israel. But he wasn't, because the other ones were so bad in comparison. Now, I need to give you a little bit of preview of what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter. We are very close to the utter collapse of Israel and their destruction as an independent kingdom. And I want to remind you that this judgment really begins to take place in the days of Hosea, and he was not one of the worst kings of Israel. And this reminds us of a very important principle about the judgment of God. It reminds us that the particular moment of judgment may not come at the height of sin. When God judges a nation or a culture, he has the big picture in view. And for that reason, the actual events of judgment may come at a time when things are not as bad in a relative sense. I mean, wouldn't you take a look at this from a human perspective and say, well, look, Hosea is not as bad. Things are getting better. Maybe the next king will be better than him. And maybe we're on our way progressing to maybe eventually someday having a good king over the northern kingdom of Israel. But even though he wasn't as bad as his predecessors, God, in bringing his judgment, actually has the big picture in view. You know, when an hourglass is draining the grains of sand, it's not the last grain that emptied the hourglass. When a lumberjack is cutting down a tree, it's not just the last strike of the axe that cuts down the tree. It's all of them accumulated. And it might be that the last swipe of the axe that the lumberjack uses is not the strongest one that he used. It might have been one of the weaker chops that he gave to the, to the tree. But yet, it was enough because of the accumulated blows before it to knock down the tree. This was the case of Hosea. By himself, he was not quite as evil as the preceding kings of Israel, but taken together, it was enough to bring God's judgment. Verse 3, Shalomanser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his vassal and prayed him, paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So in the pattern of some of the kings before him, Hosea accepted the status of being a vassal kingdom or a servant kingdom to the empire of the Assyrians. And plainly put, if he paid his money and did what the king of Assyria pleased, then he would be allowed to continue on the throne of Israel. But if he didn't pay his money or if he rebelled against the king of Assyria in any way, he should expect that uh, the king of Assyria would come with great fury against him. This was probably in Hosea's mind after seeing an opportunity when the king came to the Assyrian throne. 
You, you see, this king that's mentioned here in verse uh, 3, Shalomanser, king of Assyria, he came during the reign of Hosea and was probably a new king when Hosea decided to change his strategy and put his allegiance in with Egypt instead of the Assyrians. He, he probably thought this is a smart political move, but it was not a smart political move because as it says there, the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea. He hoped to find help among the Egyptians. Uh, by the way, the Egyptians were in a constant power struggle between uh, themselves and the Assyrian Empire. And if you just think for a moment about the geopolitical situation here, you got the mighty Assyrian Empire, you have the substantial Egyptian Empire, and geographically, who's right in the middle between these two empires? It's the land of Israel itself. Well, they were literally caught in the middle of this power struggle between these two mighty empires. And on account of this conspiracy and the failure to pay the yearly tribute money, Hosea was imprisoned by the king of Assyria. And by the way, as we might expect among the kings of Israel, Hosea did not look to the Lord for help. He looked to Egypt. Therefore, the prophet Hosea said of him, as for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. That's what he was like. You ever seen a, a little twig float down a river like the Zeeg right out here? You know, you put a little branch on it and woo, it's just carried away. There's no stability, no strength. It just goes wild with the water. That was exactly like the king of Samaria in this reference. So now verse 5. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and by the Habor, the river of Gozon, and then the cities of the Medes. End of story. Goodbye, northern kingdom of Israel. It's gone. You know, for, for weeks and weeks and chapters and chapters, we've been explaining to you over and over again how after the time of Solomon, there was a civil war and the southern two tribes became the kingdom of Judah and the northern ten tribes became the kingdom of Israel and on and on. You know, we don't have to talk about that anymore. The kingdom of Israel is gone, conquered by the Assyrians, taken away into exile. Now, it happened... After a long, dedicated campaign by the Assyrians, they besieged Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, for three years. And even though it took a three-year siege, it was worth it to the Assyrians. They crushed this nation, and they took this common ground, this battleground that lay between them and the Egyptians. And it says there that he took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria. When Samaria finally fell and the northern kingdom was conquered, the Assyrians implemented their customary policy towards conquered nations. They deported everyone out of the nation. They, they made a forced exile, and they took everybody except the very lowest classes of people. They took them back to the key cities of their empire, either to train and to utilize the talented or to enslave the able. So here we are, 200 years and 19 kings after the time of Solomon, who was the last king over a united Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel fell. Now, it was not because the God of Israel was unable to help them, but it was because they had so forsaken that God and so ignored his guidance and correction that he finally stopped actively protecting them and he let them rot and degrade according to their desire. Let me tell you something. You, you could argue very persuasively that God actually sent the Assyrian army to be the instrument of his judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. But I'm just telling you tonight, you don't have to argue that. You could say that all God did with the northern kingdom of Israel was leave them alone. You want to do it on your own? Fine. God says, I'll let you do it on your own. You won't have my hand of protection. You, you won't have my special guidance. You won't have my counsels and, and my angels watching out over you. You're on your own. Enjoy it. And they were carried away. It says they were carried away to Assyria. And when the Assyrians did this, they followed their typical custom. When the Assyrians depopulated and exiled a conquered community, they led their captives away on journeys of hundreds of miles. And you know how they usually did this? They stripped them naked and they attached them together with a system of strings and fish hooks in the lip. 
and they led them on these long strings over forced marches of hundreds of miles to completely humiliate and degrade these conquered peoples. You know, this is a principle of the judgment of God, is that when it does finally come, it's often humiliating and degrading. And can you imagine these thousands upon thousands of former citizens of the kingdom of Israel, stripped naked, fish hooks literally put through their lips, and strings running them together, and marched hundreds of hundreds of miles away, so far away that they didn't have to have the, even have the thought of an easy escape to get back to their homeland. Well, that's the end of the story. But spiritually speaking, it's not the end of the story. This story aches for an explanation. It's as if at the end of verse 6, we're left crying out, why? I mean, aren't these the children of Abraham? Aren't these the descendants of the tribes? Isn't this the kingdom or the land over at least which at one time David and Solomon ruled? What has happened to the people of God? And now the divine historian, starting at verse 7, is going to give you an extended explanation that basically lasts through the end of the chapter, explaining to you why this tremendous calamity came upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 7. For it was so that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. You see, now, as the divine historian begins to explain the fundamental reasons why the northern kingdom was conquered and taken captive, he's going to explain it, and at the root cause, it's sin. Do you see right there in verse 7? For it was so that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Now, I know I tried to explain to you a little bit ago the geopolitical situation. You know, it's kind of a fancy word to use and the empire of Assyria and the empire of Egypt and this clash of civilizations and all these different things. You could talk about those things from one sense, a secular historical perspective, but let's not forget the real reason why they were taken captive. They sinned. At root, the problem was sin. It wasn't geopolitical changes or social causes. It was sin. And specifically, the first sin listed there in verse 7 was that they feared other gods. Aren't you interested that here in verse 7, when he's talking about the sin and the idolatry of the northern kingdom of Israel, the first thing that he brings up is the exodus deliverance. Do you realize that at the time that he spoke this, the deliverance from Egypt had happened, oh, let me quickly give you the figure, it had happened some 600 years before this time. (laughs) That's really going back into the well of history, right? It's like talking about something from the days of Martin Luther as if it was today. But that's how real it was to God and to his people, the deliverance that they had received from Egypt, that they were to remember that this was the God who had delivered them. You see, God had brought Israel up out of the land of Egypt and remembering that act alone should have prompted Israel to a single-hearted commitment to the Lord. Yet they did not remember this. And they feared other gods and broke the covenant that God made with his people. Now, continuing on here now in verse 8, he's not done explaining. He's going to spend the rest of the chapter doing it. And it's a long chapter. It says, and they had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. You see, before Israel occupied Canaan in the days of Joshua, the promised land was populated by degenerate pagan peoples who practiced the worst kinds of idolatry and human sacrifice. One of the fundamental sins of the people of Israel was that they followed these ancient Canaanite ways. God wanted them to reject those ways and to worship him, but instead they followed these gods of the degenerate peoples whom they conquered. I want you to notice what it says there in verse 8. Didn't that catch your eye when it said, the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. You see, God cast out the Canaanite nations in the days of Joshua because of these sins. Now, because Israel insisted on continuing on in those sins, God says, you know what? I'm going to cast you out too. It's not that I hated the Canaanite peoples because they were Canaanites. It wasn't a racial thing. It was because they persisted in these degenerate, 
horrible sins over a long period of time, if you're going to share the conduct of the Canaanite tribes, then you're also going to share their same judgment. Going on now to verse 9. Also, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And they burned incense on all the high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. Uh, for they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. You see, it says that the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord God things that were not right. Rebellion and sin tend to cloud the judgment of men. And clearly the judgment of Israel was affected. Their judgment was so impaired so as to think that they could sin secretly against the God who sees everything. You know, that's how it is. You take a man who gets so drunk that he climbs into his car and he drives and he thinks, oh, it's okay. I'm going to drive extra special careful so the police will never know that I'm drunk. And so he's going down the road at such a slow speed and in such an obviously strange way that, of course, the police are going to pull him over. Oh, but he thinks he's pulling a fast one. In his mind, he's got it all figured out, but his judgment is so impaired, it's so clouded that he doesn't realize how obvious his sin is. Isn't it the same way with the deceptive spell that sin can weave over us? We, we, we think we can keep it secret from God. Well, God doesn't see this. I can hide it from him. Nobody else sees it, so God must not see it either. And yet we don't realize just how mistaken and how clouded our judgment is. But they went on and committed these sins. They built for themselves high places in all their cities, just like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. You see, this is the familiar theme. The divine historian hammers away at this idea again and again. The same sins that brought judgment on the Canaanites also brought judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. Now on to verse 13. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant which he had made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. You see, in his love, God sent prophets to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdoms. Their, their message was a warning against the sins that corrupted God's people and separated them from God. They invited God's people with the theme, turn from your evil ways. But as our verses tell us, nevertheless, they would not hear. God sent the messengers to help Israel and to spare them the judgment that was certain to come if they continued in their evil ways. Yet God's people became more stubborn. And when the messengers came and they rejected the messengers, their guilt was only increased. Make no mistake about it. This was a severe judgment that came upon the northern kingdom of Israel, but it only came after God had warned them and warned them and warned them, and they had repeatedly rejected these warnings, even using that phrase that you saw there that's so striking, they stiffened their necks. You know where they get that metaphor from? From the practice of oxen. A stubborn ox will make their neck hard or stiff and not bow to the yoke that is put upon them. And what does the farmer have to do when the ox stiffens his neck? Well, they use something called a goad, a sharp, sharp stick that they use to jab the flanks of the oxen. And the oxen doesn't like that and eventually has to submit to the will of the farmer. But the stiffer it makes its neck, the worse it makes it for itself. It says they followed idols and became idolaters. I like how the NAV translates this. The NIV says this, they followed worthless idols 
and themselves became worthless. Or as the New American Standard puts it, they followed vanity and became vain. Isn't that the result? You follow idols and you become like them, empty, worthless, and vain. Well, again, it's repetitive here in the the analysis of why the judgment came upon the northern kingdom of Israel. But I want you to see, as we pause here right before verse 16, that, that this is just God emphasizing the point to us, I want you to understand why this terrible calamity came upon the northern kingdom. So back now to it, verse 16. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves a molded image and two calves and made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. And Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. He tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. Well, again, it's sort of giving you the bird's eye view of all the idolatry in Israel. From the first king of the separate northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam I, recorded all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, who initiated the state-sponsored idolatry, which ran continuously for some 200 years until, under the weight of this terrible sin, the judgment of God came upon them. As it says here, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight, and there was none left but the tribe of Judah alone This was the end of the ten northern tribes as an independent kingdom. When they were dispersed by the Assyrians, some of them assimilated into other cultures. But others kept their Jewish identity as exiles in other lands. Now, this is something that we have to deal with here, and I hope you'll pay attention, because from time to time, you'll hear people teach about this idea of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Have you ever heard that phrase before? The ten lost tribes. Matter of fact, there's a whole sophisticated and I would say absolutely false doctrine called British Israelitism, which says that the ten so-called lost tribes of Israel, that they went all the way over to the British Isles. And actually, the British people are the true descendants of Abraham and on and on and on and on. It's called British Israelitism. Well, it's a crazy idea. Absolutely crazy. Because in point of fact, there is no such thing as the ten lost tribes. There were Jewish communities in these exiled lands up until the very end. You see, far back in the days of Jeroboam and his original break with the southern kingdom of Judah, the Bible tells us that the legitimate priests and Levites who lived in the northern ten tribes did not like Jeroboam's idolatry, and they, along with others who set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, moved from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Judah. That's in 2 Chronicles chapter 11. So this is what you need to realize, that the southern kingdom of Judah actually contained faithful Israelites from all of the ten tribes of the north. When Jeroboam first made this split, faithful people who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel said, man, we're going down to Judah. That's where the temple is. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where the true worship of God is. That's where we're going. Considering all this, we can say that the ten northern tribes were not lost, and they certainly did not migrate to Britain in accord with some of those crazy British Israelite theories. Some of them, particularly the godly of that day, migrated to the southern kingdom of Judah in the days of Jeroboam I. Some of them assimilated into the other cultures in which they were dispersed. 
and some kept their Jewish culture and identity in the lands of their exile. Nevertheless, it said that also here that Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. Spiritually speaking, the southern kingdom of Judah was more faithful to God than the northern kingdom of Israel, yet they also began to walk in sinful ways and imitate the sinful practices of the northern kingdom. And might I say that this made the southern kingdom of Judah even more accountable to God than the northern kingdom of Israel. Why? Because Judah had a lesson right in front of them. The conquered nation of Israel was evidence of what happened when your heart turned from God. Yet they ignored these plain lessons and they imitated the sons, or excuse me, I would say the sins of Israel. And so we read here at the very end, for the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of their sight. The summary of Israel's sin is simply that they were given over to idolatry. They worshiped the true God in a false way, and they also began to worship false gods. Now, continuing on to verse 24, it's sort of the history of the region of the northern kingdom after the fall of the northern kingdom. Verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthoth, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. So you get the picture here, right? Again, this was standard policy in the Assyrian kingdom. Not only did you move out the original inhabitants of a land, but you moved in other inhabitants of the land. The whole idea was cut off the connection that people have with their land. Resettle them so that they have no firm connection to a particular land. Instead, their connection is to the empire of Assyria in general and not to a piece of land that they once possessed. And in this curious case of these people who were resettled into the former kingdom of Israel, it says they did not fear the Lord, therefore the Lord sent lions among them. You know what this tells us? This tells us that there was not only something special about the kingdom of Israel, but there was something special about the land of Israel. God commanded that he would be feared among the people of the land, even if they came from other nations. And so uh, here we have an invasion of lions. Now, one commentator I read expressed the idea that the lions were drawn to the former kingdom of Israel because of all the unburied dead bodies that scattered after the Assyrian invasion. And the place was generally depopulated, and we see this ecological phenomenon of when an area is depopulated of people, wild animals begin to move in again. Uh, But... God sent these lions as special, well, emissaries of his protection to protect the land, to to absolutely say that the land is his. Zechariah 2.12 tells us that the land of Israel is the holy land. Now, they sent back messages saying this is happening because they don't know the rituals of the God of the land. These Assyrian officials fascinate me because they seem to know what the recently conquered kingdom of Israel did not know, that they had to honor the God of Israel. Isn't that interesting? You know, if only the northern kingdom of Israel, if only those ten tribes would have honored the God of the land while they were there, they would have never been exiled. But because they refused to do it, they were cast out, and now God had sent lions among those who occupied the land since. And so the resettled people uh, were founded, uh, again, with this sense of fear because of the presence of God among them. I have to lay out a quote here from Spurgeon. I can't resist this one. He points out here, drawing a wonderful application, he says, He did send lions among them, and it was these lions that converted them. Their teeth and fangs and fiery eyes and the thunders of the roars converted them. They must have a God to deliver them. They could not bear the lions. Therefore, they must fear the Lord who could send the lions and perhaps would cease to send them. Now, dear friends, 
always be somewhat um, diffident of your own conversion if you can trace it only and solely to motives of terror. Spurgeon's point was this, is that it's not enough just to be converted by the threat of a lion. You have to also be drawn by the love of God, because as we see, it was a very inferior conversion that these people experienced, if it could be called a conversion at all. Notice here in verse 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you have brought from there, let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samarians had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibaz and Tarach, and the Sepharites burned their children in the fire to Adrimelech and Ahenelech, the gods of Sepharim. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed themselves priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of their high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods." according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. The priesthood of the kingdom of Israel was corrupt, but the king of Assyria did not know that and was not interested in the pure religion of Israel. Therefore, he sends a nameless and a corrupt priest to teach the new inhabitants of the land a corrupt religion. Isn't this amazing? Hey, there's lions bothering these people that we've resettled in the former kingdom of Israel. Well, send one of those Israelite priests over there to teach them something about the religion of that country. And so a corrupt Israelite priest goes and he teaches them a corrupt religion. Now, certainly it had elements of the true faith in it. But at the same time, it was undoubtedly corrupted by the centuries of state-sponsored idolatry that reigned in Israel. And it says, every nation continued to make gods of its own. The, the, the priest for hire brought in by the Assyrians did not tell the new inhabitants of the land that they had to only worship the Lord God of Israel. He didn't teach it because in coming from Israel, he didn't believe it. And we're left with this astounding statement in verse 33. Did you see that? They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. This described the pagan peoples that the Assyrians brought in to populate the area of the northern kingdom of Israel. They gave a measure of respect to the God of Israel. After all, they didn't want to be eaten by lions. Yet they also served their own gods and picked and chose among religious and spiritual beliefs as it pleased them. Today I want to worship my own God. Tomorrow I'll do a little sacrifice to Jehovah. The next day, oh, I heard there was a lion attack in another village. I better offer another sacrifice to Jehovah. But next week I'll go back to my own God again. They served the Lord. It says, rather, they feared the Lord, I should say, yet served their own gods. Now this accurately described the pagan peoples who repopulated Israel. It also accurately described the northern kingdom of Israel before they were conquered and exiled. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. I would say one other thing. This accurately describes common religious belief in the modern world. People have some fear of God, or at least many people do. But wouldn't you say that that marks many, many people today? Many nominal Christians, many people who are churchgoers, they fear the Lord, yet serve their own God. Listen, this is something for us to take as a great challenge. You fear the Lord, great. But are you like one of these pagan Assyrians who's come to resettle the land? You fear the Lord, but you do as you please. You give God a measure of respect. After all, you're not a complete pagan. You're not a complete infidel. But at the same time, you don't serve the Lord as you should. Well, this false religion continued on. If you take a look at verse 34, it says, To this day they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and the commandments which the Lord given the children, the children, given 
the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, and with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote to you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods, but the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not obey, but followed their former rituals, So those nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. The area of the northern kingdom was not reoccupied by Judah uh, before their own subjugation and conquest by the Babylonian Empire. And this mixed religion, first promoted by the Assyrians, continued for many centuries in this region of Samaria, existing even unto New Testament times. Do you remember when Jesus talks about meeting a Samaritan woman? She is the product of this mixed religion of the resettled northern kingdom of Israel. Those were the Samaritans in New Testament time. And because of their mixed or some people call it in a despising way, their mongrel religion, they were despised by the faithful Jews in the days of Jesus. But it says here at the end, it says, but the Lord your God you shall fear and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. You see, the writer states this to remind us that if Israel had been faithful, even I would say even moderately faithful to their covenant of God, they would have still existed. God would have delivered them from their enemies Instead, they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire after their own self-destructive sin and rebellion. Now, that ends the kingdom of Israel in the north. But the army of the Assyrian Empire wasn't interested only in the northern kingdom of Israel. You can imagine that they also had a great interest in the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's what we come to in chapter 18, starting here at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, king of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Hezekiah came to the throne of Judah at the very end of the kingdom of Israel. Three years after the start of his reign, the Assyrian armies laid siege to Samaria, and three years after that, the northern kingdom was conquered. Now, this sad fate of the northern kingdom of Israel was a valuable lesson to Hezekiah. He saw firsthand what had happened when the people of God rejected their God, rejected his word, and worshipped other gods. And so, here, he came and reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, which was obviously a very strong and healthy reign. And you'll see why here, starting at verse 3. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, I think that's absolutely interesting how it describes how righteous Hezekiah was. He did right in the sight of the Lord. And again, did you catch this, which we did not catch with so many of the other previous kings of Judah? It says that, He did remove the high places. Aren't we finally happy about that? To have a king of Judah who will remove the high places. This means that Hezekiah was one of Judah's most zealous reformers, even prohibiting worship on the high places. These popular altars for do-it-yourself sacrifice set up a worship convenient to the worshiper, not according to God's direction. And so he got rid of those altars on the high places. What else did he do? Verse 4 tells us something very remarkable. Did you notice that? And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. 
Now, this was an absolutely priceless historical artifact. This historical artifact going all the way back to the Exodus wanderings in Numbers chapter 21, where it describes for us how during a time of a plague of fiery serpents upon the whole nation, Moses made a bronze serpent for the nation to look upon and to be spared death from the snake bites. This statement from 2 Kings tells us that this particular bronze serpent had been preserved for something like 800 years and had come to be worshipped as Nahushtan. Hezekiah, in his zeal, he broke it in pieces and he put to end this idolatrous worship of the object. I find this absolutely fascinating. An 800-year-old relic. Now listen, this bronze serpent was a wonderful thing. When the afflicted people of Israel, in Numbers chapter 21, when they looked upon this bronze serpent, they were saved. It was even a representation of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. At the same time, man could take something so good and so used by God and make a destructive idol out of it. That's very instructive for us. How man can take a good thing and make it into an idol that must be destroyed. Let me give you an example. Let's say that today, actually it was found, I don't know how they would ever find it, this is purely hypothetical. Let's say that it was found the true cross of Jesus or his actual burial cloth. Let's say that these things were discovered and very quickly became idolatrous distractions. What would you do with them? Well, listen, the most godly thing to do, and I don't know if it could ever be done in our day and age, but the most godly thing to do would be to destroy them. Because God's people must forever be on guard against idolatry. And there's many dangers of idolatry in the modern church. You know, you can make leaders an idol. You can make education an idol. You can make human eloquence an idol. You can make the customs and habits of ministry an idol. You can make particular forms of worship an idol. Now, we should get rid of them all if they become idols. You know what that name Nehushtan means? It means piece of brass. And it might have been a, a title that Hezekiah gave to that thing to sort of diminish its value. Oh, that thing? It's just a piece of brass destroy it. Instead, this man Hezekiah was something remarkable where it says that he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah. Hezekiah was absolutely unique in his passion and energy and personal trust in God and for the promoting of the true worship of God. It's even more remarkable when we remember his father. I don't know if you remember from the previous chapters of Second Kings that we studied the last time we were together. His father, Ahaz, was one of the worst kings that Judah ever had. And yet the son, Hezekiah, was one of the godliest kings that Judah ever had. Well, take a look at his political achievements here, starting at verse 7. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Hezekiah was blessed because he was honoring God. Because of his faithful trust in the Lord, God blessed him thoroughly. And he fulfilled this long-standing promise to David and his descendants that if they obeyed God, their reigns would be blessed. He did not surrender or submit to the mighty king of Assyria. You see, Assyria, at least on paper, was mighty enough to conquer Judah easily. They had just conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Yet Hezekiah and the kingdom of Judah stood strong because of their obedience to God. Doesn't it show you what the kingdom of Israel could have been if they would have been obedient? God would have protected them as he protected the southern kingdom of Judah under the threat of the empire of Assyria. But yet we see what happened to Israel here in verse 9. It says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalomanser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years they took it. 
In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria, and he put them in Halah and by the Habor, the river of, of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. Well, again, this tells us the story that we saw in the previous chapter, does it not? About the fall of Samaria, the fall of the northern kingdom. But I just want you to notice, it's quoted to us again in chapter 18 to remind us of the effect that this had on the southern kingdom of Judah. This should have been a sobering experience for the southern kingdom of Judah to see. The cruel devastation brought upon the northern kingdom by the Assyrians showed them what calamities could come upon the disobedient people of God. Now going on to verse 13. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And, he and the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. This was approximately five years after the fall of Samaria. Now, the king of Assyria brought the full force of his army against Judah, who had successfully resisted him before. He captured all of the fortified cities of Judah and needed only to take Jerusalem itself to completely conquer Judah. Do you get the picture here? The Assyrian army closes in all over the place. It's conquered so many of the fortified cities of Judah, might I say, especially as it says here, the city of Lachish. In verse 13 or 14, it mentions there the city of Lachish. That's historically important. Lachish was 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And archaeologists have discovered a pit there with the remains of about 1,500 dead people from Sennacherib's attack. In the British Museum, you can see the Assyrian carvings depicting their siege of the city of Lachish, which was a very important fortress city of Judah. But Lachish fell, and the other fortress cities fell. The only city remaining was Jerusalem, and the armies of the Assyrian king were surrounding Jerusalem. And so what did Hezekiah do? We're disappointed in this, aren't we? He says right there, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. Now look, let's not be too tough on Hezekiah. This was clearly disobedience, clearly a lack of faith, but pretty understandable, right? I mean, what are you going to do when your city's surrounded by an army? They've conquered everything else. You're kind of figuring, Lord, if you were going to save me, if you were going to save the kingdom of Judah, I think you would have done it a long time before this. Now we have to spare ourselves from being completely destroyed, from being completely ruined. He felt that it was wiser to pay off the Assyrian king and to become his subject than it was to, well, trust God to defend Judah against this mighty king. And again, I am supposing that Hezekiah thought that since the northern kingdom had been recently conquered and that all the fortified cities of Judah had been captured, that God was demonstrating that he would not rescue Judah just like he did not rescue Israel in the northern kingdom. And Hezekiah was in that very difficult place that you and I find ourselves in. We see ourselves in this story, don't we? i got to do something myself. God's not going to come through. I have to do something. Now, perhaps this idea was strengthened in Hezekiah when he remembered the wickedness of his own father Ahaz and when he considered that because of his own father's sin, Judah deserved judgment and maybe he thought that's why the judgment was coming. Therefore, it says Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and all the treasures of the king's house. Hezekiah hoped that this policy of appeasement, of giving in to the enemy, would make Judah safe. He was wrong. 
And the only thing that that policy did was it made Judah poor and it made the temple and it made King Assyria more bold than ever in the attack against Jerusalem. Listen, when you give a hungry dog a piece of meat, does the dog get satisfied and walk away? No, he says, I like the way that that tasted. Maybe there's more. And that's the way the king of Assyria felt. Anyway, now on to verse 17. Then the king of Assyria sent the tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they're mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now, it brings this guy before us that we're going to get to meet a lot in this chapter and in succeeding chapters, this guy called the Rab Shacha. This is actually not a name. It's a title. It describes a field commander for the Assyrian army who represented the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And it says that he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool and he cried out to these officials in the government of King Hezekiah. And he seemed to be in complete command of the situation. He could walk right up into the city of Jerusalem, stand at the crucial water supply, which, by the way, was Jerusalem's lifeline in a siege attack. And as he stood there, three officials from Hezekiah's government came to meet him and he said, what Confidence is this in which you trust. And might I say, don't we wish Hezekiah was trusting in the Lord right now? He really wasn't. Isn't that fascinating? Instead, Hezekiah was actually putting his hope in an alliance with Egypt, and the Rabshakeh wanted him to lose confidence in that alliance. When he says, what confidence is this in which you trust? He's not talking about the confidence that Hezekiah has in the Lord. He's talking about the confidence that Hezekiah has in Egypt. It was a great temptation for Hezekiah during this time to make an alliance with Egypt, just as much as it was a great temptation for the king of the northern kingdom of Israel before him to make such an alliance. And I would have to say, this man, the Rabshakeh, as offensive as he is, He spoke the truth. You know, God did not want Hezekiah to have any trust in Egypt at all. But the Rabshakeh did not do it to bring Judah to affirm trust in the Lord God. No, he did it to completely demoralize Judah and to drive them into despair. You know, Satan often attacks us the same way. You find a great, great example of Satan in this man, the Rabshakeh. Often Satan will tell you the truth. He'll look you square in the eye and say, you're such a rotten sinner. Well, you know, that's the truth, isn't it? You are such a rotten sinner. But but did Satan do that for any good purpose? Did, Did he do it so that you would trust more in the Lord and so that you'd bring your sin to Jesus and be cleansed by his work on the cross? No, he did it to drive you into depression and despair. That's the same strategy of the Rav Shaka. It's true that Hezekiah should not have been trusting in Egypt, but at the same time, his trust should have been in the Lord. Now, going on here, verse 21. Now look, again, these are the words of the Rabshakeh. Now look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to put riders on them. How will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Oh, he's fighting dirty now. The Rabshakeh says, listen, don't trust in your God. Don't trust in Egypt. We're going to conquer you. All you can do is surrender because God has sent me to come and conquer you. That was the entire strategy of Rabshakeh. 
I want you to notice something. What was he trying to do here? He was trying to make him feel so depressed, so demoralized, so defeated that he just gave up. You see, that's exactly what Satan wants to do. All the time, we think that Satan really wants to battle us, that he wants to fight us, that Satan is itching for warfare against us in Jesus Christ. You know what? He's not itching for warfare at all because he knows that in a spiritual battle, he has a very good chance of losing because you have the power of Jesus Christ on your side. So you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to get you so depressed, so demoralized, that you just surrender. Satan's plan is not to defeat you in battle. It's to get you to surrender before the battle even starts. Listen, if the Rabshakeh had such a great army, if he was so invincible, if it was so easy for him to conquer Jerusalem, why is he even talking to the king's officials right here? Why not just march in with his armies and do it? Because his real strategy, his real goal is surrender. He wants you to give up. Don't you see how this Rabshakeh is such a great illustration of Satan against us? Of how Satan tries to attack us. And he mixes a bizarre mixture of truth and lies together intended to drive us into total despair, even trying to make us think that God himself is against us. Isn't that what he said? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And you can just imagine how these thoughts swirled around in the head of Hezekiah. Well, he's so successful. Maybe the Lord is with him. The northern kingdom fell. They destroyed all the fortified cities. My father was such a sinner. Maybe the Lord is with him. Maybe I should just surrender. The confusion, the darkness, the fog that comes upon him and that comes upon us in that moment of spiritual warfare. But don't miss the strategy. The strategy is always the same. Surrender. Surrender. This is what the devil wants you to do. Well, verse 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Now that's a pleasant thought, isn't it? This is so human, isn't it? The king's officials are saying to Rabshakeh, hey, you know, this is bad for publicity. Can you just speak to us in the language that we understand so that the people can't understand what you're saying? It's really going to start to bum the people out if you continue on in this way. You can just imagine how difficult it was for these leaders in Hezekiah's government. They must have thought, it's bad enough that we have to hear this. But since he's speaking in Hebrew, everybody's going to hear it. And soon the people will come so discouraged that they'll rise up against us and make us surrender. But you know, Rabshakeh didn't care, did he? The field commander for the Assyrian army didn't care if the common citizens of Jerusalem could hear him. That was one of his goals. The more fear, the more discouragement, and the more despair he could spread, the better he liked it. And he closed his words with that nice little thing in verse 27, who will eat and drink their own waste with you. What he's doing is he's reminding them of the terrors of a siege. Right When the army would surround the city and nothing could go in and come out and they would force them into such terrible starvation that people would eat things that was unimaginable for them to eat and drink before. Well, he's doing this all to magnify their sense of fear, discouragement, and despair. So look at what the Rabshakeh does beginning here at verse 28. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke saying, Hear the words of the great king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present. And come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine and his own vine from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink from the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah. 
lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim and Hanna and Iva? Indeed, they have delivered, indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? What a dramatic speech from the Rabshakeh. You know, when the officials from Hezekiah's government said, you know, please, please, Mr. Rabshakeh, could you not speak in a way that upsets the people? It was like saying, don't do that to a naughty child. He couldn't wait to do it. He said, let me speak to the people all around here. And then he says, listen, I'm going to glorify the enemy facing God's people. This man is so much like Satan. You can just smell it in this passage, can't you? He said, listen, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Instead, make peace with me and everything will be great. Oh, boy, you'll have a great land. Yeah, we'll take you to someplace else, but it'll be like a vacation. We'll put you in a great land with your own fig tree, with your own vine. It'll just be wonderful. Life will be great if you just surrender to me. Again, isn't that what Satan does? I got to say, from time to time, I hear Christians tell me, that, you know, they followed a certain course that the Lord wanted them to do, but the spiritual attack just became so intense that they just, well, they just gave up. You know, I say, well, you know, at least Satan's not attacking me anymore. But whenever I go in this direction, Satan just starts attacking me. And so I just don't go there anymore. I just don't serve the Lord in that way anymore. And you just think, good heavens, what are they saying? Well, you know, if I just surrender to the enemy, he doesn't bother me anymore. You know, that's exactly what the Rabshakeh was trying to tell the people of Jerusalem to do. But then, as is the pattern for Satan time and time again, he takes one step too many. Did you notice that at the end of the verses that we took a look at? Verses 34 and 35 especially, where he says, verse 35, Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? You see, the Rabshakeh's speech was intended to destroy their trust in God and his message was simple and might I say it was brilliant in its satanic logic. He said the gods of the other nations have not been able to protect them against us. Your God is just like one of them, and he can't protect you either. Now, with anyone who had any kind of spiritual understanding to see it, Judah could have started planning the victory party right then. It's one thing to speak against Judah. It's one thing to speak against its people and its leaders. It's another thing to mock the Lord God of Israel this way and to count him as just another God. If anyone would have had the spiritual understanding to do it, they would have shouted, hey, uh, order the party hats for the victory party. You know, uh, look, let's get in lots of streamers, lots of bunting. You know, call the guys up. We're going to need the parade route again. Victory party coming up. You see, typical of the work of the enemy of our souls, the Rob Shekhar was going well until he simply overstepped his bounds. There was no way that God was going to let him off the hook for this one. He had offended the Lord God in a way that he would soon regret, but it didn't come right away. Look at verse 36. But, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over his household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Well, listen, the people were discouraged and depressed. The officials of Hezekiah were so shaken that they tore their clothes. They came to Hezekiah. It seemed never darker. This mighty Assyrian army that had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, that had conquered every fortress city of Judah, that was now closing in on the last stronghold of the people of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, threatening to destroy it, completely demoralizing them. It looked like the enemies of God were never in a stronger position except for this little matter 
of insulting the Lord God who reigns over Judah. How does it all turn out? Well, we'll have to wait till the next time we're together to see in chapter 19 and chapter 20 how this plays out. But you can just imagine that even though the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, the southern kingdom will not. Because as weak and vacillating as Hezekiah was in this particular point, yet they were not ripe for judgment the way that the northern kingdom was. And so tonight we have these two great lessons from these two kingdoms, one that was conquered and one that was under the threat of being conquered. It's very plain to see the spiritual difference between the two. One of them rejected God's warnings, and one of them, at least in general, listened to God's warnings. That's the great lesson for us to take away, among many others, from this here tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you show us something of the way that you deal with man, something of the way that the captain of our soul uh, battles against the Rabshakeh who threatens us, Lord. And we're so grateful that we don't have to listen to Satan's lies, that we don't have to be bound under his deception and his efforts to drive us into despair and discouragement. Lord, instead, we proclaim tonight that our trust is in you. Our faith is in you. And we ask, Lord, that you would keep us from giving in to the satanic logic that he brings against us of mixing truth together with lies until we're so confused and so filled with despair that, Lord, we do exactly what he wants us to do. We just surrender. Keep us, Lord, from that deception. Keep our eyes, our faith, our heart strong after you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.